Yeah, talking freedom and liberation. Worldwide, not just only for the nation. A radical guide. It's time to make changes. Bringing interviews and radical education. Yeah, yeah. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of A Radical Podcast, your go-to space for thoughtful and in-depth discussions on the forces that challenge and reshape our world. I'm your host, Jason Bayless. Today, we have a robust agenda that touches on state power and civil liberties, as well as global movements to radically rethink justice systems. First up in our anarchist and radical news segment, we're diving into the alarming recent events in Atlanta, Georgia, where activists are facing a slew of severe charges, domestic terrorism, RICO violations, and even money laundering, all for exercising their right to protest Cop City. After that, we're going global in our resistance around the world segment to discuss the growing calls for prison abolition, an initiative that's far more complex than merely tearing down walls and opening gates. Lastly, in our About a Radical Guide segment, we'll introduce you to the anarchist Black Cross, which has been pivotal in supporting prisoners and challenging the prison industrial complex. You won't want to miss a minute, so get comfortable and let's jump right in. Let's go! We've got a significant story today that speaks to the ever-shifting dynamics of state power and grassroots resistance. This story comes from Atlanta, Georgia, and revolves around the controversial Cop City, a $90 million police training center that has become a flashpoint for public discourse around law enforcement, environmental justice, and community displacement. Firstly, we've got to talk about the weaponization of legal mechanisms. The Georgia Attorney General has brought down indictments against more than 60 people under the racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations, RICO Law. These individuals are primarily protesters who have been rallying against the construction of Cop City. But it doesn't stop there. In a perplexing display of judicial overreach, some are facing additional charges of domestic terrorism and money laundering. This is a clear example of how the state uses law as a tool to squash dissent and delegitimize grassroots movements. The ACLU has already flagged this as an unprecedented use of state terrorism, anti-racketeering, and money laundering laws against protesters. These protests haven't sprung up out of nowhere. Activists rallying under the banners of Stop Cop City and Protect the Wilani Forest have been focusing on multiple issues, including climate justice, displacement of black communities, and the increasingly militarized face of American policing. This is not a one-issue protest, but a multifaceted movement tapping into a variety of interconnected concerns. The protests have been largely peaceful, involving camps, marches, and community events, though the state's focus is on a minority who have allegedly engaged in property damage. Interestingly, the indictment concentrates its narrative on the Defend the Atlanta Forest group, depicting it as an anti-government, anti-police, and anti-corporate extremist organization. It's fascinating how the state's narrative aims to put the group in a neatly packaged box of extremism rather than confronting the issues it raises. Attorney General Chris Carr frames the protest as violent acts, plain and simple, clearly avoiding the uncomfortable conversations about why people are on the streets in the first place. Notably, the indictment cites monetary transfers, most of which are less than $100. It mentions one defendant receiving $15.18 for living in the forest. The attempt here seems to be to add a layer of criminality through money laundering charges, but when you look at the details, it appears almost farcical. Let's not forget those who are indirectly affected. Bail fund organizers have been arrested under RICO and money laundering charges. Their crime? aiding those who can't afford to pay bail themselves. 
The Southern Center for Human Rights is currently seeking legal representation for those indicted, underlining the gravity and complexity of the situation. In a curious turn of events, DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston pulled her office out of these cases, citing philosophical differences with the Attorney General's office. This could be a small but significant fissure within the state apparatus, perhaps indicative of internal disagreements on how to handle community dissent. The state is going full throttle in Atlanta, criminalizing protesters under RICO and other severe charges, setting a dangerous precedent that could discourage active resistance. It isn't just about one training center, it's about broader issues that plague American society today. While the state machinery is adept at legal gymnastics, let's not lose sight of the core issues at hand, the right to protest, environmental justice, and systemic discrimination. It's a scenario that invites both vigilance and, more importantly, sustained activism to counterbalance this heavy-handed approach. And if you are in Georgia and want to get involved, legal help is urgently needed. So as we ponder these developments, the question looms, what does this mean for the future of grassroots movements and state-citizen relations? With every indictment, the stakes get higher, but so does the resolve of those fighting for a more equitable world. That's our report for today's Anarchist and Radical News segment. Stay tuned for more stories and discussions that challenge the status quo. A radical guide, that's what this is. Highlighting the diverse world of resistance. This week on Resistance Around the World, we're setting our sights on a topic that many consider radical, but that's gathering increasing mainstream attention, prison abolition. Now, when I say prison abolition, some of you might immediately think of chaos, of criminals running amok without any consequences. But that's a misconception we aim to clear up today. Prison abolition is not about an absence of accountability. Rather, it questions the form that accountability should take. It challenges the notion that punitive measures like imprisonment are effective ways to deal with social issues. Instead, abolitionists argue for replacing our current prison system with a framework focused on rehabilitation, restoration, and addressing the root causes that lead people to commit what society deems as crimes. Today, we'll be looking at this topic from multiple angles. We'll start with a journey back in time to understand the origins of prisons. What are they, and how did society and radicals initially respond to them? Then, we'll discuss the darker purposes that prisons serve, focusing on how they've been utilized as tools of suppression and how loopholes like the one in the United States 13th Amendment perpetuate systemic inequality. But we won't stop at merely identifying the problems. We'll explore what a world without prisons could look like and how we could get there. We'll even touch on some transitional models, ways societies are evolving their justice systems as potential stepping stones toward full abolition. And finally, we'll examine the ongoing quest for justice around the world through various initiatives and movements that align with abolitionist objectives. To understand the sprawling beast that is the modern prison system, we first need to trace its historical evolution. This is not just an exercise in academic curiosity. It's about contextualizing the flaws and structural imbalances that have endured across time. The idea of confining individuals as a form of punishment isn't new. It dates back to ancient civilizations. Our earliest records show dungeons in Mesopotamia and Egypt as far back as 1000 BC. However, these were less prisons in the modern sense and more like dark, underground pits where people were detained before typically grim fates like death or slavery. Beyond punishing offenders, these early detention centers were also used to hold political prisoners and enemies of the state. 
even from these early days, we see the penitentiary system morphing into a mechanism for political control, a theme that remains tragically persistent throughout history. Fast forward to 1785, and we have the opening of the Massachusetts State Prison. This institution is a milestone as it represents what we might recognize as a modern prison. Soon after, Connecticut and Pennsylvania followed suit, laying the groundwork for the state-sanctioned prison systems we know today. By the late 19th century, the United States was establishing its federal prison system, with the first one being Leavenworth in Kansas in 1891. Around this time, we also start to see the first moves toward privatization. Louisiana was the first state to privatize its penitentiary in 1844, a precursor to today's controversial private prison industry. Privatization set the stage for what we now refer to as the prison industrial complex, a term that captures the symbiotic relationship between private industry and the state in the perpetuation of mass incarceration. This framework serves not just as a means of punishment, but as a lucrative business model rife with ethical dilemmas. Now, let's zero in on the intellectuals, the activists, who have been challenging the status quo of prison systems. These are the people who, across different epochs and locales, have applied rigorous thought and impassioned activism to critique, dismantle, and offer alternatives to the prison system. We begin our exploration in 19th century Russia with the aristocrat-turned-anarchist Peter Kropotkin. He's an intriguing figure. Born into nobility, he would renounce his title and dedicate his life to the study of societal structures, geography, and, yes, the failings of the prison system. One of Kropotkin's significant contributions is in his seminal work in Russian and French prisons, where he meticulously examines the prison systems of his era. Now, Kropotkin wasn't one to skirt around the issue. In his view, prisons were nothing short of schools of crime, as he directly puts it. This isn't merely a rhetorical flourish. He substantiates this by pointing out that the skills and attitudes nurtured within prison walls are more likely to produce re-offenders than reformed citizens. In fact, in his writings, he explicitly states, the idea that the more cruel the punishment, the less crime will occur, the idea that crime can be nipped in the bud by brutal punishments, has never been confirmed by facts. He takes us further down this rabbit hole by highlighting how prisons fundamentally break the human spirit, creating individuals who are more obedient to authority, but not morally or socially improved. You see, for Kropotkin, the prison is not just a physical space of confinement, but an institution that produces a specific type of social relationship based on domination and submission. It's vital to understand that Kropotkin's disdain for prisons dovetailed with his broader anarchist principles. He believed in mutual aid, a cornerstone of his philosophy, arguing that cooperation and voluntary association are the paths to a just society, not coercion and punishment. His work on prisons can be seen as an extension of this philosophy, advocating for a paradigm shift in how society deals with so-called criminal elements. When you read Kropotkin, you realize that his critique is not merely academic. He offers a philosophical condemnation of prisons, but also underscores the need for practical alternatives. He suggests that social inequities, poverty, lack of education, are often the real criminals, and thus the solution lies in addressing these root causes. To replace the punitive system, he proposes educational and rehabilitative methods that equip individuals with the tools they need to contribute positively to society. Kropotkin's influence can be seen in the DNA of modern prison abolition movements. 
His work questions the very foundation upon which our notions of crime and punishment are built, urging us to reconsider whether prisons serve the collective good or merely perpetuate cycles of crime and social decay. His intellectual lineage acts as a rallying point for contemporary thinkers and activists who are pushing for a more humane, equitable system of justice. Stepping forward in time and moving to mid-20th century France, we encounter Michel Foucault, a philosopher whose academic rigor is nothing short of a juggernaut. Foucault had a knack for upending conventional wisdom, and nowhere is this clearer than in his examination of prisons in the seminal work Discipline and Punish, The Birth of the Prison. Foucault's argument here is more than just a critique of prisons. It's an excavation of the very nature of power, discipline, and social control. One of his key insights is the concept of the panopticon, a prison design conceived by philosopher Jeremy Bentham. In a panopticon, a single guard can observe all prisoners without being seen themselves. For Foucault, this wasn't merely an architectural curiosity. It was a metaphor for how power operates in modern societies. Here's a pivotal quote from Discipline and Punish. He who is subjected to a field of visibility and who knows it assumes responsibility for the constraints of power. He makes them play spontaneously upon himself. He inscribes in himself the power relation in which he simultaneously plays both roles. He becomes the principle of his own subjection. You see, Foucault suggests that the panopticon's power lies not just in its capability for constant surveillance, but in its ability to internalize discipline within the prisoners themselves. The prisoners become their own guards, internalizing the mechanisms of control. This is a profound idea extending far beyond prison walls. Foucault argues that modern societies are essentially networks of these panopticons. From schools to hospitals to workplaces, these structures condition us to discipline ourselves, to conform to norms of behavior that maintain the existing power relations. But Foucault goes further. He illuminates how the prison system is not just a place to house people who have transgressed laws, but an institution that serves a broader societal function. In his view, the prison exists to label, categorize, and discipline those considered socially deviant. He states, The prison is like a rather disciplined barracks, a strict school, a dark workshop, but not qualitatively different. His critique makes us question not just the prison system, but the very societal norms and definitions that designate someone as criminal or deviant in the first place. In this way, he provokes us to examine the root causes and systemic factors that lead individuals into the prison system, such as poverty, lack of education, and social discrimination. Foucault also invites us to think about the alternatives. Though less prescriptive than Kropotkin, his work lays the theoretical groundwork for rethinking the systems of social control entirely. He implores us to consider other ways of producing social order that do not rely on oppressive, hierarchical structures. The writings and ideas of Michel Foucault have left an indelible mark on how we understand the intersection of power, control, and the carceral state. His work is a sort of intellectual toolkit, providing modern-day activists and scholars the conceptual frameworks to dissect and critique the prison system and its role in the broader social fabric. Let's jet across the Atlantic and land in the United States to meet Angela Davis, an intellectual powerhouse whose activism and scholarship have intersected at the most fraught corners of America's civil rights and prison abolition movements. Davis gained global fame in the 1970s, not just for her intellectual contributions, but for her own lived experiences with the U.S. criminal justice system. 
One of Davis's pivotal contributions to the discourse is her analysis of the prison industrial complex. For those unfamiliar with the term, Davis unpacks it with the clarity and urgency that only she can muster. In her book, Are Prisons Obsolete? She writes, the prison has become a black hole into which the detritus of contemporary capitalism is deposited. What she's pointing out here is not just that prisons are full, but why they are full and whom they are full of. In Davis's eyes, the prison system is not an isolated phenomenon, but an integral part of a capitalist society that benefits from the exploitation of marginalized communities. Davis draws our attention to the fact that the burgeoning prison population, particularly in the United States, is not a random occurrence. Instead, it's the result of a carefully orchestrated set of policies designed to maintain economic and racial hierarchies. She makes explicit the connections between capitalism and the criminal justice system by critiquing how prisons have been turned into profit-generating enterprises. Davis articulates that the prison industrial complex involves a network of private and public interests, including corporations that profit from prison labor, politicians who use tough-on-crime stances to garner votes, and lobbyists who push for policies that increase incarceration rates. Her analysis takes a crucial step further by articulating how this system disproportionately impacts communities of color, particularly Black and Latino communities. The war on drugs, minimum sentencing laws, and racial profiling are not merely bad policies, according to Davis. They are targeted strategies that function as new forms of social and racial control, a continuation of a long history of racial subjugation in the United States. But Angela Davis is not just a critic. She's a visionary. Unlike some intellectuals who stop at critique, Davis actively engages with the practicalities of what could replace the current prison system. She's been a strong advocate for restorative justice, a method that emphasizes repairing the harm caused by criminal behavior rather than punitive measures. In Davis's words, restorative justice, the involvement of alternative institutions, can accomplish the work that punishment has never succeeded in doing. The work of Angela Davis serves as both a mirror and a window, reflecting the profound inequities in American society, while also providing a view into what could be a more equitable future. She invites us to not only tear down, but to build up, to think deeply about how we can move from a society of exclusion and punishment to one of inclusion and rehabilitation. Davis not only scrutinizes the system, but also challenges us to imagine a world beyond it. Her work adds texture to our understanding of the prison system, linking it to broader socioeconomic and racial factors that can't be ignored if we are to engage in any meaningful reform. She compels us to consider that the fight against the prison industrial complex is also a fight for economic justice, for racial equality, and for a reimagining of society itself. As we continue our journey, let's make a stop to appreciate the pioneering work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, another American scholar who advances our comprehension of the prison system. Unlike some other critics, Gilmore brings into sharp focus the intersection of mass incarceration with race, geography, and capital. She brings a multidisciplinary approach to her work, drawing on geography, economics, and social theory, which allows her to provide a panoramic view of a deeply rooted issue. If Angela Davis gave us the framework of the prison industrial complex, Gilmore propels the discussion further with her concept of carceral geography. In her seminal book, Golden Gulag, Gilmore introduces this term as a way to understand how mass incarceration is not just a collection of individual choices and behaviors, but a spatial strategy to manage surplus land, 
labor, and capital. She reveals how prisons are often built in economically depressed rural areas, serving dual purposes, solving the problem of surplus land, and acting as a source of employment for struggling communities. She insists that the prison system in the United States is a manifestation of a deeper structural issue, one intrinsically tied to racial capitalism. In one of her influential essays, she states, racism specifically is the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. This isn't just academic jargon. Gilmore is pointing out that racism isn't simply a belief or an act of discrimination. It's a systemic force that determines who lives and who dies prematurely, and the prison system is a critical mechanism in this calculus. Gilmore doesn't merely point out the problem. She goes on to dissect its various components. She delves into the political decisions that have driven mass incarceration, examining how tough-on-crime laws emerged from political maneuvering rather than genuine public concern about safety. Gilmore argues that these policies were aimed not at reducing crime, but at controlling surplus populations, especially black communities and other people of color who had been rendered expendable by the dynamics of modern capitalism. Where Angela Davis calls for restorative justice as a possible solution, Gilmore goes a step beyond to advocate for what she terms abolition geography. In her view, the abolition of prisons is not merely about tearing down physical structures, but about building life-affirming institutions that render prisons obsolete. She talks about investment in education, healthcare, and community services as critical pathways to not only ending mass incarceration, but to also building a society where all lives are truly valued. Ruth Wilson Gilmore significantly expands our understanding of the carceral state by emphasizing its deep-rooted connections to structural racism and capitalist exploitation. She doesn't just invite us to tear down the existing system. She actively sketches the outline of a world we would want to live in. Her scholarship enriches the abolitionist discourse, making it impossible to consider mass incarceration without grappling with its racial and economic dimensions. In this way, Gilmore not only enhances our critique of the prison system, but challenges us to envision and work towards comprehensive alternatives. Ruth Wilson Gilmore pushes the boundaries of our understanding, compelling us to examine the prison system as not just an isolated institution, but as part of an ecosystem of social inequities. She urges us not just to react against the existing system, but to act proactively in creating a new one. As we begin to zoom out from individual thought leaders, let's focus on the broader community of abolitionists who offer critical perspectives on the very concept of prisons. This is a collective endeavor, not confined to academic ivory towers, but deeply rooted in community activism and direct experiences with the carceral state. While scholars like Kropotkin, Foucault, Davis, and Gilmore have laid down theoretical frameworks, the abolitionist community takes the torch and runs with it attempting to turn theory into praxis, practical action. These are the activists, the organizers, and the community leaders who don't just question the utility of prisons, but declare them as fundamentally incompatible with justice and human dignity. If we listen closely to the voices emerging from this movement, it's clear they're not just challenging a single institution. What they're taking aim at is an entire ecology of violence, injustice, and systemic dehumanization. They dissect how prisons serve to criminalize poverty, pathologize dissent, and calcify social hierarchies, arguing that the prison's role isn't an aberration. 
It's a logical outcome of a society rooted in inequality. Now, when we talk about alternatives to incarceration, these activists are not merely suggesting piecemeal reforms or surface-level changes. They talk about a whole new ecosystem of justice based on reparative and transformative models that include restorative justice circles, community accountability mechanisms, and investment in social infrastructure like education and healthcare. So as we move forward to the next section, it's essential to keep in mind that the abolitionist lens isn't merely a critique, but a pathway. It sets the stage for understanding the structures that make prisons seem necessary and challenges us to imagine and create a world where they are not. Through this intellectual and activist journey, from 19th century anarchist thought to contemporary critiques that dissect the intersections of race, capitalism, and systemic violence. These perspectives not only deepen our understanding of what's wrong with the prison system, but also offer us blueprints for what could replace it. As we transition to discussing the broader context that sustains and nurtures the carceral state, let's not forget that each one of these radical thinkers and abolitionist activists arms us with the analytical tools to dismantle systems of oppression and offers us a vision for a more just world. All right, let's switch gears and take a more macroscopic view. After walking in the footsteps of radical intellectuals and taking cues from the abolitionist playbook, it's time to scrutinize the broader social, political, and economic landscapes that give prisons their reason for being. The prison, you see, is not an aberration, a lone malignant tumor in an otherwise healthy body. Rather, it's a manifestation of deeper systemic diseases, legacies of colonialism, capitalism, racial injustice, and authoritarian tendencies. Think of this section as zooming out on Google Earth. You start to see the borders, the highways, the rivers, and the topography that shape the terrain. Likewise, the prisons we've been dissecting don't exist in isolation. They're bolstered and sustained by a whole host of power dynamics. Let's unpack that. To fully understand prisons, we have to explore the systems of power that sustain them. The theoretical frameworks offered by radical intellectuals aren't mere abstractions. They're reflective of historical and ongoing realities where prisons actively serve as tools to muzzle dissent. From the days of the Bastille in France to modern-day detention centers across the globe, prisons have been used to silence political dissidents, community organizers, journalists, and anyone seen as a threat to the established order. This isn't an accidental byproduct, but an intentional function. In the United States, the Cold War era, which spanned roughly from the end of World War II in 1945 to the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, was a period of ideological and political tension between the United States and the Soviet Union, along with their respective allies. During this period, the term political prisoner was often invoked to criticize countries with authoritarian regimes, particularly those under the Soviet sphere of influence. These were individuals imprisoned not for criminal activity per se, but for their political beliefs or activities that challenged the ruling government. The term gained international prominence as part of the ideological battle between democracy and communism, a central theme of the Cold War. In Western discourse, it was frequently used to spotlight human rights abuses in rival countries while sidestepping domestic issues of incarceration and dissent suppression. The suppression of dissent through incarceration also manifests in so-called democratic countries. Think of whistleblowers like Chelsea Manning and critics of authoritarian regimes who find themselves behind bars, such as the political dissidents in Hong Kong's recent history. 
In essence, prisons can serve as state-sanctioned tools to quash political activism and grassroots movements that challenge the reigning ideologies. It's impossible to discuss the power dynamics sustaining the prison system in the U.S. without exploring the constitutional mechanisms that tacitly endorse it. The 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, ostensibly abolished slavery, declaring, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. While this may read like a decisive win for human rights, pay close attention to the loophole, except as a punishment for crime. This seemingly innocuous exception clause has been leveraged in insidious ways to continue systems of forced labor and racial control long after the Civil War ended. The period of Reconstruction was followed by the rise of black codes, laws designed to criminalize freedmen for minor offenses like loitering or breaking curfew. The subsequent criminal convictions provided a pathway for their re-enslavement under the 13th Amendment's exception clause. Fast forward to today, and we see an evolution of this system in the form of mass incarceration, which disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. In essence, the 13th Amendment didn't eradicate a system of oppression, it transformed it. Here's where modern private prison complexes come into play. These establishments turn a profit by exploiting the very loophole presented in the 13th Amendment. Operating under a business model that benefits from full occupancy, these private prisons have a vested interest in keeping as many people incarcerated as possible. This not only incentivizes mass incarceration, but has its roots in a slave economy, trading human freedom for economic gain. The prison thus becomes the new plantation, perpetuating racial and economic inequalities under the banner of law and order. In sum, the 13th Amendment doesn't just have historical significance. It plays an active role in shaping present-day realities, entrenching a system that can turn freedom into bondage through the legal code. Speaking of the United States, the FBI had a program called COINTELPRO, or the Counterintelligence Program, was initiated by the FBI in 1956 and continued until 1971. Its mission was to surveil, infiltrate, and disrupt domestic political organizations and figures deemed subversive. Initially aimed at the Communist Party USA, its scope quickly expanded to include civil rights organizations, feminist groups, and other activists. Prominent figures like Martin Luther King Jr. were monitored and even harassed under this program. The program was not just about surveillance. It directly facilitated the wrongful imprisonment of activists. Whether through entrapment or fabricated evidence, COINTELPRO effectively turned prisons into pens for political dissidents, reinforcing the idea that the prison system is an essential tool in the suppression of dissent. As we move into the digital age, the prison system's role in suppressing dissent takes a modern twist. Take Chelsea Manning, a U.S. Army intelligence analyst who leaked a vast trove of classified documents to WikiLeaks. Manning exposed, among other things, a video of a U.S. helicopter firing upon unarmed civilians in Iraq, killing 12 people. This kind of transparency was threatening to the U.S. government, but opened up necessary dialogues about the ethics of warfare. These documents exposed various unethical practices by the U.S. military and diplomatic corps, including evidence of war crimes. For this act, she was court-martialed and sentenced to 35 years in prison, a term that was later commuted by President Barack Obama in 2017. Her imprisonment sparked an international debate over the role of whistleblowers, the limits of government secrecy, and the ethics of leaking classified information. 
The mechanisms used against Manning, legal prosecution and public shaming, didn't just result in a harsh prison sentence. They also served a dual purpose, to punish Manning and to deter others from following in her footsteps. The message is clear. Expose governmental wrongdoing and face the formidable punitive powers of the prison system. And it's not just in the United States. The struggle for political freedom plays out globally. Hong Kong's recent history is marked by the imprisonment of pro-democracy activists and lawmakers subjected to charges like unlawful assembly and subversion. Now, Hong Kong is a special case. It operates under a principle known as one country, two systems, allowing it some autonomy from mainland China. But recent laws and actions are eroding that autonomy, which is what has driven so many in Hong Kong to protest and end up in prison. Hong Kong has seen a recent wave of pro-democracy protests and movements, especially since the 2014 Umbrella Movement. Political dissidents in this context are individuals who oppose the encroaching influence of mainland China on Hong Kong's semi-autonomous status. The 2019-2020 protests in Hong Kong were ignited by a controversial extradition bill, but the 2020 national security law imposed by Beijing significantly escalated the incarceration of political dissidents. This law has even been used to target pro-democracy figures living abroad, effectively extending the symbolic reach of the prison beyond geographical borders. Political dissidents in Hong Kong now find themselves in an expanded battleground, where the consequences of dissent can result in imprisonment, not just locally but potentially anywhere in the world. As we've seen, the use of prisons extends beyond mere punishment. They're enmeshed in political, social, and economic systems aimed at suppressing dissent and maintaining the status quo. Therefore, reformation isn't enough. We must imagine and work towards dismantling the prevailing systems that allow prisons to function as tools of suppression. This isn't just an academic exercise. It requires grassroots mobilization, political will, and a commitment to ethical principles that prioritize human dignity over maintaining oppressive power structures. Let's shift gears and imagine, just for a moment, a world without prisons. This might be a conceptual leap for some, but stay with me. The very thought might conjure images of lawlessness or social chaos for those accustomed to viewing prisons as a necessary evil. However, envisioning a world without prisons doesn't mean we're endorsing a world without justice or accountability. Quite the opposite. What it offers is an opportunity to reimagine how society could be structured to address root causes rather than symptoms, to heal rather than punish. Abolishing prisons is no small task and certainly isn't something that can be achieved overnight. This venture demands a thorough reconsideration of our current justice models and, in that context, the theoretical frameworks of restorative and transformative justice stand out. Restorative justice seeks to repair harm rather than simply doling out punishment. It encourages direct communication between the offender and the victim, allowing the victim to express how they have been harmed and what they need for resolution. Transformative justice takes it a step further by not just restoring relationships to previous states, but transforming them for the better. It challenges us to examine the systemic issues that led to harmful behavior in the first place, nudging us towards structural change. Both frameworks provide us with a blueprint to begin the abolition of prisons. The focus shifts from isolation and punishment to accountability, reparation, and collective responsibility. Now let's explore steps to achieve abolition and its societal impact. Number one, policy reform. 
Initially, a pragmatic approach would require policy changes aimed at decriminalizing offenses like drug use, which disproportionately lead to the incarceration of marginalized communities. It's not just about removing laws, but about rewriting them in ways that embody social justice principles. Number two, invest in communities. Next, the billion spent on maintaining prisons could be rerouted into community programs focused on education, housing, healthcare, and employment services. If the systemic issues of poverty and lack of access to quality services are addressed, we automatically reduce the factors that contribute to crime. Number three, alternative dispute resolution. In lieu of courts and prisons, community-run programs could be designed to deal with disputes and harm. Such centers could employ methods from restorative and transformative justice practices. Number four, mental health support. A significant number of people in prisons are there due to untreated mental health issues. Robust mental health services need to be accessible for everyone, not just those who can afford private care. Number five, societal education. This is an ongoing process. Society needs to be educated about the damaging effects of prisons on marginalized communities and about the alternatives that can lead to a more equitable system. A world without prisons would be transformative in ways we can barely conceive. Primarily, it would humanize justice, making it a collective societal responsibility. It would also signal a profound shift in societal values from punishment to rehabilitation and prevention. This shift would foster a more equitable society, giving every individual a genuine opportunity to contribute positively to their communities. While the steps I've outlined are far from exhaustive, they offer a roadmap to what could be a seismic shift in the way we think about justice, social responsibility, and human dignity. And yes, the journey will be long and fraught with challenges, but it starts with imagining the possibility and committing to make it a reality. We're talking about a fundamental reordering of society, which is always a Herculean task, but history has shown us that the impossible becomes possible when people collectively decide that enough is enough. Abolition is more than just the absence of prisons. It's about creating a society where prisons are unnecessary. Therefore, let's get to work, not just tearing down walls, but building up people. Certainly, while the abolition of prisons is our ultimate goal, it's essential to acknowledge that societal transformation is a process rather than an immediate leap. Along that spectrum, there are existing models that seriously challenge traditional carceral systems and could serve as transitional steps. They don't completely align with the idea of abolition, but do represent steps toward a system that could eventually make prisons obsolete. Norway provides an insightful case study in this regard. The country's justice system has garnered international attention for its emphasis on humane treatment and a rehabilitative approach to imprisonment. In Norway, the prison environment is designed to mimic the outside world as closely as possible so inmates can transition more smoothly back into society. The cells look like dorm rooms rather than metal cages. Inmates are encouraged to develop skills, take part in community activities, and maintain relationships with the outside world. They even have prison farms where inmates can work with animals as part of the rehabilitation process. The philosophy behind this is rooted in the idea that creating a respectful and normal environment encourages inmates to become better members of society rather than further alienating them. The effectiveness of Norway's approach is well documented, especially when you look at recidivism rates. According to various studies, the rate of reoffending in Norway is significantly lower than in countries with more punitive systems. When people are treated with dignity and given the opportunity for self-improvement, they are less likely to re-engage in criminal behavior. 
This isn't soft justice. It's smart justice. The Norwegian model represents more than a policy change. It's indicative of a cultural shift in understanding justice. Rather than defining justice as retribution, Norway views it as an opportunity for rehabilitation and social reintegration. This perception change is instrumental in garnering public support for prison reforms, including lower sentences and humane treatment. While the Norwegian model is not the ultimate goal for those advocating for abolition, it presents a radical departure from the punitive models dominant in many other countries. It offers a tangible example of how the humane treatment of inmates can lead to positive societal outcomes. It can serve as an intermediate step that countries with more punitive systems can learn from and adapt to their own cultural and social contexts. As such, advocating for the adoption of more humane prison systems in the short term does not mean we are relinquishing the long-term goal of abolition. Rather, it serves as a transitional model that moves society closer to a justice system that is restorative and rehabilitative by nature. This is essential for building public and political will for more transformative changes down the line. Transitional models like Norway's are akin to way stations on the long road to abolition. They offer proof that alternative approaches to justice can and do work. These models can help to shift public discourse and pave the way for more revolutionary changes, thus making the seemingly impossible goal of abolition more attainable in the eyes of the general populace. So while we set our sights on the horizon of a world without prisons, it's crucial to identify and advocate for transitional models that can help us get there. Let's pivot our attention now to initiatives and systems that align more closely with our overarching aim of prison abolition. We're entering the terrain of what some might call the quest for justice, an intellectual and ethical landscape where various movements and systems around the world showcase how the idea of justice can be drastically reimagined and redefined. With this lens in mind, we turn first to the wisdom of specific indigenous communities. These systems of justice offer not merely alternatives, but crucial lessons in how we can dismantle punitive frameworks. Now, when examining the approaches to justice among these indigenous cultures, it's imperative to debunk some persistent myths. Far from being static or archaic systems confined to history, these are dynamic, evolving traditions. They tackle contemporary social challenges, whether it's substance abuse, domestic violence, or environmental degradation. These justice systems are living entities, breathing through the communities that uphold them and continuously adapting to the times. For instance, some Native American tribes utilize a tribal council system. While rooted in historic customs, it's an updated and relevant practice designed to address the conflicts and crimes of the here and now. Here, the focus turns away from punitive actions and leans more toward restoring community balance. Offenders, victims, and community members convene to engage in a form of dialogue that has been effective for generations and remains so today, even for contemporary issues like cyberbullying or substance abuse. Similarly, in some Maori communities in New Zealand, age-old traditions are not mothballed concepts but active frameworks. They underpin modern restorative justice efforts, focusing on collective well-being and spiritual restoration for everyone involved. These practices have even been integrated into New Zealand's formal legal system, showcasing their adaptability and continued relevance. In the United States, efforts similar in spirit but distinct in execution are underway. While the indigenous practices we've discussed offer community-centric models for justice, 
It's important to see that modern urban grassroots initiatives represent parallel efforts to reimagine justice within their own contexts. Take, for example, a community-based program in Philadelphia that deals directly with gang-related conflicts. Operating outside the usual punitive framework, the program brings rival gang members into a dialogue. Rooted in the concept of participatory justice, this initiative has successfully diffused several potentially violent situations, steering young adults toward communal responsibility and away from retaliatory harm. It's not just about replacing one system with another. It's about addressing the underlying societal issues, like income inequality, that often manifest as community problems. These initiatives aim to shift the focus from punitive action to mutual understanding, repair, and community building. Participatory justice in Philadelphia largely operates outside the typical bounds of the criminal justice system. Community members engage in collective decision-making processes to address conflicts and harms directly. The goal is to meet the needs of everyone involved, rather than simply assigning blame and dispensing punishment. Through dialogue, restitution, and communal responsibility, these initiatives target the underlying factors contributing to harmful actions, such as systemic inequality, lack of education, and limited access to resources. These participatory justice models are a strong step toward breaking the cycle of harm perpetuated by conventional punitive systems. Importantly, they serve as an example of how local, community-driven solutions can pave the way for broader societal shifts towards justice models that are rooted in restoration and reparation rather than retribution. As we wrap up this segment, focusing on prison abolition, let's take a moment to pull together the threads of our rich tapestry of discussion. We've journeyed from the origins of prisons those confined spaces originally designed as holding pens for human beings to the way they've been weaponized to suppress dissent, exemplified by the deeply flawed yet potent U.S. 13th Amendment. We even dared to conceptualize a world without prisons, exploring the theoretical frameworks that could make such a vision not just a dream but an attainable reality. Our exploration didn't stop at the realm of the theoretical. We considered existing transitional models, like Norway's attempts at humane incarceration, which while not abolitionist, are testing the waters for a transformative shift in how society deals with crime and punishment. And finally, we honed in on efforts that take us closer to our abolitionist aspirations, restorative justice models in indigenous cultures and ground-level community initiatives in the United States. These aren't mere pie-in-the-sky ideas. They're living, breathing initiatives that challenge the punitive status quo. And crucially, they're adaptable, evolving in response to the needs and conditions of their respective communities. It's evident that around the world, there's an increasingly vibrant resistance to conventional models of justice, a resistance that's both theoretical and intensely practical. These efforts share the ultimate goal of a more humane, equitable, and effective system, one that prioritizes restoration and community over retribution and isolation. In looking at all these elements, we can see how they each contribute a piece to the larger puzzle of prison abolition, offering insights that can inform our perspectives and strategies moving forward. Now, as we proceed to our next segment, let's carry these lessons and examples with us. These initiatives and frameworks aren't isolated. They're part of a larger ecosystem of resistance. Let's stay attuned to these efforts as they enrich our understanding and energize our shared pursuit of a more just world. Thank you for journeying with us through this multifaceted landscape of resistance and aspiration. Stay tuned as we continue to navigate through the rich terrains of anarchism, 
radical politics and social resistance in our quest for a more equitable world. Radical education, yeah, yeah, a better future, what we really need, not rooted in capitalism. Welcome back to our About a Radical Guide segment, where we take a magnifying glass to the engines of resistance that have shaped and are still shaping our world. Today, we're zeroing in on the Anarchist Black Cross, or ABC, an organization that is more than a century old and yet strikingly relevant in our current landscape of activism. With its roots in the tumultuous times of early 20th century Russia and its branches extending across the globe, ABC has not just weathered the storms of history, it has navigated them with unyielding commitment. So let's break down its fascinating journey, its evolving tactics, and its undying mission to challenge the oppressive nature of prison systems and state power. When you're tracing the roots of an organization as vibrant and multifaceted as the anarchist Black Cross, you'll find that its origins are a subject of intense debate. While it's commonly held that ABC was born between 1900 and 1905 as the anarchist Red Cross, recent findings suggest that we may need to adjust our historical lenses. It was actually Harry Weinstein, following his arrest in July or August 1906, who began activities that would eventually morph into the anarchist Red Cross. Upon his release, he focused on sending aid to exiled anarchists in Siberia. When he arrived in New York in 1907, he extended these operations, laying the groundwork for what would become an international movement. It wasn't long before ideological tensions led the early anarchist Red Cross to break away from the political Red Cross, which was controlled by the Social Democrats. Why? Well, the PRC was excluding anarchists and social revolutionary prisoners, despite the financial contributions they'd made to the cause. This ideological parting of ways was more than just a footnote. It was an essential recalibration of purpose, setting the tone for the ABC's inclusiveness and solidarity with political prisoners of various ideologies. In a period marked by the SARS draconian measures, the ABC, then still called the Anarchist Red Cross, had to operate in the shadows. The risk was high. Members faced potential imprisonment in Artbiski Prison in Siberia. Yet, paradoxically, repression heightened resolve. Several ABC members who avoided capture moved to cities like London, New York, and Chicago to establish international chapters and sustain the flame of resistance. Fast forward to the Russian Revolution of 1917. What appeared to be a victory for leftist movements turned out to be a deceptive calm before another storm. The Bolshevik regime, contrary to their revolutionary rhetoric, borrowed from the Tsar's playbook of oppression. It was a brutal reminder to ABC that vigilance against all forms of state power, even those that appear as allies, is non-negotiable. The anarchist Black Cross never allowed its mission to fossilize. It was dynamic, recalibrating its strategies to adapt to the contours of global struggles. Whether it was offering aid during the Spanish Civil War or aligning itself with civil rights movements in the United States in the 1970s, ABC continued to internationalize its mission and amplify its voice against systemic injustices worldwide. ABC's tactical evolution has been equally impressive. They've employed an array of methods, from letter-writing campaigns to fundraising for legal defenses, always with an eye on the larger goal of deconstructing the prison industrial complex. The organization's multifaceted approach came into even sharper focus in 2001, with the establishment of a network to better coordinate these diverse activities. Here's another pivot worth noting. ABC's increasing engagement with local communities. 
The organization appreciates the imperative of bottom-up change and has been proactive in establishing educational programs and mutual aid networks that empower local communities to challenge the status quo. As you listen to this, you might be asking, how can I get involved? Good news. A Radical Guide offers a curated list of ABC support groups globally, offering tangible ways to contribute to the ongoing mission of this indomitable organization. What can we glean from all this? The Anarchist Black Cross is more than an organization. It's a living narrative. It's a story of resistance that each one of us can contribute to, adding our unique chapters to a legacy that's far from being finalized. As you go about your day, think of this. The pen is in your hands, and the story still has many chapters to be written. So how will you inscribe your part in this long tale of defiance and hope? That wraps up our brief look at the Anarchist Black Cross. This is more than mere history. It's a story still in the making and an invitation for you to be part of it. From early struggles against Tsarist and Bolshevik regimes to modern fights against the prison industrial complex, ABC stands as a symbol and a catalyst for a different kind of world, a world where systemic injustice is not just questioned but dismantled. And that is both the lesson and the challenge. Let's go. Well, folks, we've reached the end of another episode. Today, we explored the unnerving legal crackdown in Atlanta, a case that starkly exposes the lengths to which the state can and will go to suppress dissent and curtail freedoms. In our Resistance Around the World segment, we opened up a critical dialogue on prison abolition, an urgent global issue that forces us to confront and reevaluate our very conceptions of justice, punishment, and societal organization. And of course, we spotlighted the Anarchist Black Cross in our About a Radical Guide section, a group whose work is more relevant now than ever as we collectively grapple with the implications of imprisonment and state coercion. A Radical Guide is not just this podcast. It's a vibrant community and platform brimming with resources, tools, and actionable ways for you to get involved and make a real impact. If you find yourself inspired by our conversations and want to contribute, there are a couple of immediate steps you can take. Firstly, if you're aware of significant locations of resistance, historical sites of activism, or community projects that align with our ethos, we invite you to add them to our dynamic map. This map serves as both a historical record and a modern guide, pinpointing areas of past and current struggles, thereby enriching our collective understanding of global movements. Secondly, for those who are able, financial contributions are incredibly appreciated. Your support ensures that we continue to bring you thought-provoking content, sustain our operations, and extend our reach, making this crucial knowledge accessible to even more people. Whether it's a one-time donation or a recurring subscription, every bit helps in keeping the wheels of a radical guide turning. By supporting in these ways, you're not just a listener. You become a vital part of a community working to challenge the status quo and strive for a more equitable world. So as we say goodbye for now, we urge you to carry these discussions into your everyday life. Challenge the structures that confine us, literally and metaphorically, and strive to build a world where freedom isn't a privilege but a right for all. Until next time, this is Jason Bayless, signing off from a radical podcast. Keep questioning, keep resisting, and as always, stay radical.